Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Fit. I am Paul Rose, as usual, as ever, I'm joined by Luke Morgan and today we have a very special guest in Suzanne Turner, who is taking on the Adventure Grand Slam, or as she's calling it, Expedition Endeavour. Suzanne, welcome. Uh, just in two or three minutes, tell us a little bit about yourself and your challenge. Hi Paul, hi Luke. Well, a bit about my, my background, I suppose, as I come from a, a military background, I was in the army for 10 years which really introduced me to climbing, to mountaineering, to everything, everything mountains and, and adventures. And then I had a big break from it when I left. I had an equestrian business for, for 12 years. And that unfortunately uh, didn't survive things like glass recession and stuff like that. I had a big mental health plunge. I got diagnosed with severe clinical depression in 2012. And so then I kind of went on this little bit of a roller coaster journey to try and sort of, you know, help myself get out of that, out of that sort of funk that I was in. And uh, I started getting back out into the mountains, started climbing again and uh, started doing, doing challenges, running challenges, that sort of thing. And then I've, I've sort of long had this, this, this sort of dream to do the seven summits, which is the highest peak on each continent. And I've also always wanted to go to the poles, to North and South Pole. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was just trawling around online, as you do. And I sort of discovered that actually there was an official thing for combining the two called the Adventure Grand Slam. And me being me and not really wanting to do things in the usual sort of way, uh, you know, a lot of people, well, the majority of people completing the Adventure Grand Slam, you know, it takes years. And I sort of tend to sort of think, well, what's the biggest way that I can do this? And I looked into it and I discovered that there is actually a, 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 rec a world record for it, an overall one. And then there's a female one as well. And I thought, well, I'll see if I can uh, see if I can set a new one. And that was kind of how it how it got born, really. So, yeah, so that's the aim is to complete the Adventure Grand Slam, the highest peak on, on each continent and ski the last degree to the, to the two poles within uh, seven month time period so just a small undertaking then <laughs> <laughs> so the seven peaks obviously there's everest the south american one i can never pronounce this properly aconcagua yeah something along yeah, those aconcagua, yeah. north america you've got mount mckinley africa kilimanjaro europe mount elbrus um yeah. Antarctica, Mount Vincent, and what I've been looking at, you've got two choices uh, for kind of Australia, Australasia, Oceanus. It's saying either Mount Kosciuszko or the Karstens Pyramid. So, which yeah. one of those are you going for? Uh, both. Oh right, okay. Just to so yeah, there is a <laughs> there's this there is this long ongoing debate over which is the which is the continent in that region. So originally right. it was considered Australia was the, was the continent. And so therefore Kosciuszko was the highest peak in the, in, on that continent. Then there was sort of this, this uh, argument thrown up that, well, if you, if you look at the continent slightly differently, then that actually includes the more the, the continent of Oceania. So that actually made Papua New Guinea part of it, which meant that the Karstens pyramid was now the highest mountain. And when you look at the two, Kosciuszko is basically a big hill. You know, it, it's the sort of place that families take their toddlers for a day walk up there and have a picnic on the summit. It's not a, uh, it's not a challenging mountain particularly. Whereas Karsten's Pyramid is. So of course, when you start getting you know, the actual, you know, the real sort of, I suppose, mountaineers are saying, well, Kosciuszko isn't really worthy of being called the, the highest peak so actually we prefer to use cast end so this 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 sort of two versions of the seven summits appeared depending on what your view of of the continent is and i can see the argument for both actually but for me you know the masha gordon who holds the current female record she did both so therefore <laughs> in terms of order presumably when you're going you're trying to do this in a a particular time particularly a world record time the order you take them on is going to be quite important 
Um, so yeah. how are you, how have you kind of planned that side of things? Yeah, it's very much you're looking at where, when the optimal weather windows are for, uh, for each, for each mountain, for each environment. Some of them are quite long weather windows, so you can be a bit flexible, whereas some of them are very specific. You know, obviously Everest has a very specific time frame. The North Pole has an even smaller time frame um, weather window. So, so some of those are fairly set. They have to be done in this two or three week period or, or, or month period or six week period. There is no ifs and buts, whereas others are a little bit, they have a longer weather window, longer optimal time, so you can be a little more flexible. But, but there is still a basic time of year. So there are a couple of them really, December, January, those are the times that you can do them. Then you've got Kilimanjaro, which is a little bit longer. You've really got anywhere from December through to March that you can go. Denali is another one, and McKinley, as it used to be called, is a, uh, another one that has a, a fairly specific weather window. So, uh, so there is a little bit of flexibility, but there's still, it's, it's sort of gradually looking at, at this, an order is, is coming out as to how we'll go from, from one to the other actual dates and real time frames are not quite so set in stone because there's some flexibility for you know whether you you know get up a mountain on the first go or whether you get hunkered down for a few days and it has to take a little longer so it's so there's there's flexibility there so are you looking at key mountains and knowing their time frames and then is it just a case of trying to organize the others within those time frames or is or is the position of where Some you of are them, on yes. the planet the, at the time important? Um, the the main the main two really that are that are the peak ones to work with is the North Pole and Everest. And there is actually there's there's more of them that fall into the second half of it than the first half. So the first half is relatively, I don't want to say straightforward, but it sort of flows a little bit more. Whereas then you get to March and suddenly it's a case of, well, actually, I've got sort of three or four different environments here that all fit into that March window. And so trying to kind of juggle them is, is a little bit harder. It's sort of it is now starting to sort of fall into place a little bit as to what the pattern might look like. But I'm not the expert on that side of the expedition planning. That's why I'm uh, using um, 360 expeditions um with a little shameless plug there but um yeah yeah so they are you know they they've been doing the seven seven summits and all these places for years they have so much more experience on the logistical side of things so they're heavily involved with that with the planning side of things so in terms of experience obviously experience is really really important when you undertake a a challenge of this kind of magnitude you've done a lot of kind of trekking and climbing mountaineering in the past have you done any of the seven summits previously or is this going to be your first attempt with, with all of them? I have done Kilimanjaro. Uh, that's the only one of, okay. of the ones that I'm doing that I have done before. Uh, that was uh, back in ooh, 2000, I think. So okay. we're, going, we're going back 20 years since I last was up there. So uh, I'm sure that it will have changed a little bit. Not, not, not so much the mountain itself, but the sort of environment around it's probably changed a bit. Yeah. The way yeah. things are done. Has, has changed a bit but um you know i've just come back from mount kenya so that sort of gave a taste of how how things are, are operating now uh, in africa in that in that region so it sort of gave me an idea of how things will work i imagine even things like equipment have changed a lot in 20 years as well oh massively yeah massively when i look at the way that we used to do things back in the in the 90s compared to how we're doing it now um kit and equipment a big key thing now is weight you know the 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 kind of kit and equipment that we have now is so much lighter than we used to lug around so uh, that definitely makes things a lot easier but on the other the flip side of that is that there is also a lot more choice now so you know 20 years ago you, you there wasn't the the amount of choice in uh, manufacturers and sort of makes and models of kit so you know you can you can look at things you think wow well i need a pair of gloves okay there's about 50 different pairs that i can choose from <laughs> so, so maybe that's the flip side of it is that actually we've got so much choice trying to kind of nail down what what you actually really need is takes a bit longer but it's quite fun going into a place and trying all these things on so yeah 
testing them out. So when you're you know, going down the, the road of kind of kit and the choice and stuff like that, I'm guessing you, you can't just go into the Lake District or the Scottish Highlands and go into your average kind of mountaineering shops for the kind of equipment you want for the likes of Everest because it's, it's going to be a step up from what their usual customer would be uh, looking at. Do you need to, do you, are there kind of real specialist companies out there who who work with people like you who are doing these kinds of extreme expeditions? Yeah, yeah, there are. And I mean, you can now, you can you can get high altitude kit from some of the, the, the main, the bigger retailers of, of outdoor kit. I mean, you can get it online now, you know, you can go and go onto uh, a website and order a, uh, you know, a down suit for that's suitable for 8,000 meters. So, you know, you, you, you can get this, you can get these things online. It's, um, I, I personally wouldn't, I would go and <laughs> to, to, to try it. And, and actually, particularly when it comes to boots, I've made that mistake before of getting boots online uh, not really having an opportunity to test them out and then crucifying my feet as a result. So now I'm a bit more choosy and a bit more uh, selective. I think when it comes to footwear, I think it's, it's so important that you get your footwear right. And, and actually, you know, you need to be able to try that sort of kit on. But yeah, I mean, there, there are, there are um, plenty of, of good adventure retailers who are, who are retailing the high altitude and the specialist kit. More so, I think, than the polar kit. Polar kit so perhaps goes even more specialised and there's not so many uh, that are doing that. But again, if they're doing high altitude kit, then there's a fair chance that they'll have the sort of kit that you need for the polar regions as well. So, I suppose that's one of the benefits of being with an expedition company as well because you've got to tap into all of their experience and all of their contacts. If yeah. they've done these kind of things before, then... You've got a direct link already, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. And there, there is a crossover as well between the high altitude kit and the polar kit. So although foot, the footwear is, is specialist between the two, as far as the kind of, you know, down suits and things that you're wearing, they can be used in either. So there is a, uh, pardon the pun, but a mountain of kit to get. But there's this quite a bit. I have a, a very detailed spreadsheet, which actually has, you know, a complete I have a kit list for each mountain and 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 the two poles kit lists are separate for each of those but then I have this spreadsheet that actually cross-references and sort of says well yeah okay so this this rucksack can be used on five expeditions great uh, that's that's that one but oh actually this one needs this size rucksack or, or this one needs this kind of down kit and this one needs these kits so you can so it just kind of allows me to to see where I can actually use kit more than once and uh, how do you get to train with all your kit because obviously a down suit if you go out on a summer's day in the chilterns it is going to do you more harm than good it's not it's not ideal preparation for minus 20 minus 30 and and beyond in the yeah. poles so what what can you do to get used to wearing those kind that kind of equipment i mean the ideal way is to uh, is to use it out on a big mountain somewhere and be able to to test it out beforehand i mean the, the the original plan would have been that i would be going out to to the himalayas in around about october time uh, to go and and get a sort of six seven thousand meter peak in before we start obviously at the moment things are a little up uncertain a little up in the air so I don't know whether the, I, I actually I really have no idea what's going to happen over the next six months as to what decisions are going to need to be made regarding start dates and all that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, ideally, you, you'd want to be able to test this kit out in a in a real environment. I mean, you you, you can test it out to a point of you get used to wearing it and, and boots and things, you know, you can get them worn in. But yeah, like you say, if you're in the middle of even our summer, putting a down suit on would be pretty <laughs> horrific <over> the top. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't really want to do too much in it <laughs> in terms of acclimatization for altitude and things you're saying you're meant to be going to the himalayas in in uh, in the autumn people spend 
weeks, months even, could, could spend three, four months just summiting Everest with going up to camp two, down to camp one, up to three, down to two and so on. So is there a, a kind of an element of you acclimatise as you go? You, some of the smaller peaks prepare you for the higher peaks in, in other continents or do you just have to kind of brave it and, and go for it with a, a kind of a faster process than what a lot of people would do on some of these mountains? Yeah, I mean, I suppose a, perhaps an, an advantage of going from one to the other to the other to the next is that every acclimatization is going to be of benefit for the next mountain you know there's not going to be a, a, a great long gap in between where where the acclimatization that you get from let's say you know going up vincent then you lose that when you go back to do aconcagua and so on and so on so yeah so there is certainly going to be an element of a sort of a rolling acclimatization with each one helping for the next one However, you know, when you go to, when you then go to Everest, there's still, you know, a good 1500 meter jump from yeah. in altitude and you can't just kind of go, oh, well, you know, I've, I've been to six mountains already, so that's great. I can just go up in one. There will still be that, that sort of rolling acclimatization of doing the, the rotations, but hopefully by the time we get to Everest, those rotations will be, I'm not going to say the word easy, but do you know what I mean? They, they, you know, the, the climatization will be far, far ahead than it would have been if I had just gone to Everest yeah. um, and start, was starting from scratch. But uh, yeah, the altitude is still going to be, be tricky. And of course, uh, again, there's flip sides to everything because then you think by the time I get to Everest, I will have actually already done, what, eight of them. So I will have been in this extreme environment for five months at that point. So the, the downside of that is I'm going to be knackered, you know, so there's going to be pros and cons to both is that, you know, yes, I'll get to Everest having been at altitude a lot and, and have that altitude gain, but there's going to be tiredness and uh, muscle fatigue, all that kind of thing to take into account as well. So, you know, you, you have to sort of weigh these up and, um, and still take them into consideration. Yeah. Whilst we're on this, Suzanne, as well, you just mentioned muscle fatigue, mental fatigue, and so on. What are you currently doing to prepare yourself for these for this challenge? This is a, we're sort of in this a real tricky time at the moment because it's very difficult to really get into a real sort of detailed, specific training plan without having a date to work off. And I'm the sort of person that I need to have a goal with a date to motivate me. And I think, you know, I mean, we sort of touched on this on a, on a WhatsApp chat the other, the other day, didn't we, Luke, about motivation? You know, and I said, actually, my motivation over the last couple of weeks has taken a real hit. And I hadn't really sort of done anything because I just didn't, I was sitting looking at this training plan and I'd, I'd, we'd obviously, we'd, I came back from Mount Kenya and that was what 10 days before we went into lockdown so I sort of came back and I still had this this plan going on but suddenly it was like oh, okay I don't really know what's going to happen then we went into lockdown and I was still right well this is still happening you know I'm still going for the December start date that's all still going ahead so I'll just carry on as I was and then you know as we started going into this lockdown more and more and suddenly it's looking more uncertain and I can't put dates on things. It's like, well, I don't know what I'm working back from here. You know, because you would have, it's the same as you would if you were training for a marathon, you know, you would, or a half marathon, you would have your date of the, of the day you're running and then you work your program back from that to make it that progressive fitness training that you're doing for it. And it's the same with this. So I would have the various sort of training expeditions and say, right, well, that's, that's that step, right? So working back from that, this is where I am now. So this is how I've got to, got to do this. But not having those dates makes it very, for me anyway, for the type of person that I am, I kind of go, well, I don't really know what, I don't really know how to do this now. What am I working to? Well, you know, what, what time frame am I working to? So then I had a couple of weeks where I was just like, oh, motivation went completely out the window. And it wasn't, I wasn't doing anything. I was still doing loads of planning but 
training wise, I kind of didn't really, I didn't really have a, a an idea of what would be the best thing to do. And, and then I sort of gave myself a little bit of a, a pep talk and, and sort of thought, well, you know, you've just got to get out and be doing something. So now all I'm doing really is I still go out, I go out on, I use loaded hikes a lot. So basically, you know, going out, increasing, increasing a distance, gradually increasing weight carried, but I'm not really putting too much pressure on myself to, to really stick to a detailed plan. It's so well, you've just got to keep building, but, um, and not let it drop off, but without being too kind of hung up on, on dates and, and where it's going at the moment. So, and actually I found that training has become more enjoyable doing that. Whereas before it was sort of functional, whereas now I'm actually, I'm going out and it's, it's in a way more about enjoying what I'm doing and keeping my mental health, uh, you know, high. Uh, and using the word that, you know, this is what obviously is really important. People are getting out where they can and, and, getting some fresh air and getting out and I'm very very fortunate to live where I do right in the heart of the Chilterns that I can walk out of my door and you know be up in the Chiltern Hills I've got farmland and countryside all around me so so I can do that and I've noticed that I'm much more I think in 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 the in the now I guess when I go for a walk I'm very much more aware of of nature and listening to the birds singing and and everything as well so I'm uh, actually it, you know it, it, training has changed slightly at the moment it's just it's really interesting that you would make that point because that's exactly the same point that Ty made a couple of weeks ago when we spoke to him about his um, running to be cancer ultra challenge and he's in obviously it's a completely different challenge to yours but very similar situation in that everything's on hold dates wise there's a lot of uncertainty but trying to maintain some fitness for when things do, we do have some more direction to things. And he said exactly the same thing. Training's become more enjoyable and just going out and being one with nature and it's benefiting my mental health. And yeah, I just find that really, really interesting that mm. two people who are obviously very motivated for specific goals which are completely different. Yeah, which are completely different. Would and you've have, got the same approach. Yeah, mm. same approach and the same experience from from what's obviously going on in the world at the moment. And I guess a big thing for you as well, people might be thinking, well, you know, you can just, you don't, you could just do this on your own. You could go to these places. Even if you could somehow get a flight to Nepal, say, it's not like Snowden. You can't just turn up and, and climb it. You need to have climbing visas and, and all these all this paperwork that goes with it. But the Nepalese government have just stopped at the moment. And yeah. until that, until they bring that back, yeah, you can't go near it. Um, mm. And obviously, they might turn around and say, well, we're not going to issue any until there's a vaccine or something, which then would obviously throw a massive spanner in the works. So how do you you deal with that kind of uncertainty and just the, the not knowing anything with regards to, to when you might be able to do this challenge? Is it just a case of you work to your planned start time like you were talking, or do you have a plan B, C, D lined up in case? Mm. I think um, something that I've sort of learned in mountaineering is that you have to have contingency plans because it rarely goes smoothly so you have to have a sort of a the what if scenarios you know okay so what if this what if that you know and, and have alternatives that you can then dip into and I think that that then gives you more confidence as well for what you're doing you you know how you're going to perhaps deal with with problems if they arise you know you're not just kind of in a this sort of blinkered bubble of oh it'll all be wonderful and I'll just I'll just fly in, I'll get to the summit, I'll walk up there and there we go, I'll stand on the top, wave my flag and come back down again. You have to be realistic to the the kind of problems that you could face. Obviously, you know, hoping that you're not going to have to to face them, but having the, the backup plans in place. And, you know, obviously, until the last sort of few weeks, 
I certainly wouldn't have been expecting the the problems that I could face to be what they are now you know I was sort of putting contingencies in for the normal kind of things that you have to deal with but yeah I do have a plan b and a plan c so and and there are three I suppose three categories really that are key to how this then progresses forward so the three categories for me are firstly travel restrictions you know there is no point in me setting off even in december if let's say the country like you've just used nepal as an example there's no point in me setting off in december if nepal is still closed just in the hope that maybe by by april they'll have opened and then i get to april and actually nepal is still closed but i've just done five mountains yeah it would just be a waste of time and money um, and, and effort so for me all the travel restrictions have to have been lifted on on every country and and we have to be certain that there is no that it's not going to get shut down again so sort of fairly similar to this sort of you know these five pillars the government have isn't it you know it's these kind of things that you've got to want to fulfill um and also from a, a safety point of view as well you know i i wouldn't want to be traveling into a country that's suddenly having a, a second wave or, or whatever and hopefully that won't happen but travel restrictions are, are a big one I, I need to be able to know that I can get my visas that travel is now open again and and people are you know we are able to get into these places the second one is training uh, so that is quite a big thing as to where the restrictions that we're in now the impact that that has on the training that i'm doing i've already now missed i should have been doing polar training spe uh, specialized polar training last month and that has now not happened and i've never been to the to those regions before and the type of thing you've got to do is very different to mountaineering because you you're, you're skiing pulling a pulk so and although i ski i've never actually pulled a pulk before so to you know is it it's that's kind of weighing up the the training that I've missed and the training I've lost and, and, and what impact that potentially could have. So that's kind of the second one is is what training I've been able to do and, and whether actually there is training that I really can't afford to miss. And so I need to get that in beforehand. And then the third one is money, um, is funding. Obviously now I'm I'm not in any way shape or form really sort of doing anything regards sponsorship it's just not appropriate it's not it's not really feasible at the moment so but you know this is a challenge that is going to cost somewhere in the region of three to four hundred thousand so and unfortunately i don't have that sitting around in my bank account <laughs> as much as i would like to um so it is reliant on companies wanting to be involved with it and so, you know, and, and, and being willing to, to financially invest in it. So again, that's another consideration to take into account. So the, the plan at the moment is obviously plan A is everything comes together and we set off in December as normal. Plan B would be it gets pushed back a month to possibly a January start. So January to July rather than December to June. That actually does still, it kind of, pushes things a little bit more but it it does still make it possible to fit into the various weather windows but that is the only allowance there is for this season for the coming season um if if a january to july isn't possible then it will just go right we postpone for a year and just go for next december uh, so a, a december 2021 start so those kind of are the, the three options at the moment to so if worst case scenario happens, you end up with Plan C. It's pushed back to December 2021. What does that do to your your training and and motivation, things like that? Because it must be very hard to think, oh well, I'll just carry on and do this for another year. It's obviously it's it's got a financial toll. It's got a physical, mental toll. So what would you if it becomes clear in the next, say, six months that that's the only option, would you just say, OK, I'm going to have a few months off and then come back to it in whenever it may be? Or do you just try and 
carry it on through for another year? I think something I try and do is I'll I try and where, where I can, once I've kind of picked myself up from perhaps the disappointment of having to change something, because obviously there will be that, is to then look at what the positives that are going to come out of the worst case scenario are. And I'm trying to already do that so that I don't get that disappointment if I do have to say, right, okay, it's got to be December 21. And so the positives really are that I can kind of get this year back again in a way. So obviously, you know, it's like I just sort of mentioned about not being able to go on the polar training. You know, it will then mean that I can get that training in because hopefully by April next year, we will be able to go out to Long Yerburn and, and do some polar training it would give me an extra year hopefully then you know the economy picks back up again businesses get back up and running and i can you know obviously then it gives an extra year to try and you know get the sponsorship and that sort of thing an extra year of training there are downsides to it i suppose in a way the only one really that starts to get more hard the or harder the the longer it goes is the north pole because sadly the way things are going it's not going to be long before we can't get to the North Pole on foot. Um, we've already had the this year and last year, nobody went to the pole because they closed it. This year was predominantly because of the, the virus, but last year um, was down to uh, more sort of financial and political reasons that were going on. So that's very dependent on those things, but also just the stability of the sea ice is, is depleting. And so it's going to get to a point where there's more water than there is ice, in which case, you know, this becomes this sort of travel by foot to the North Pole is going to become obsolete. And therefore, the Grand Slam as it stands becomes <laughs> impossible. So um, so there is a there is a time pressure in a way, particularly for the North Pole. The others, the mountains will be there. They're not going anywhere. So the only one really that does have this, actually there isn't an indefinite amount of time that, that I can do this one, then that, that is the North Pole. So I can't really, realistically, I think probably next year, it could be the, the last opportunity that there is to do this Grand Slam as it stands at the moment and be able to go to the North Pole on foot. So from that point of view, that, that that's kind of, really I suppose maybe the limit as to where it might go but yeah the upsides extra time to train extra time to get things put in place extra time to fundraise I think those are the the, the positives maybe from the possibility of having to delay that's a really <laughs> point about the um, North Pole obviously we all know about melting ice caps and how it's affecting the poles I had no idea we were at that close to a point where you couldn't get there on foot. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a real eye opener. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not a polar expert. I don't really know. I'm really I'm going off, in, you know, data that I'm reading and that sort of thing. So there, maybe there would be people who know more than me who would sort of agree or disagree. I, I'm not sure, but from what I've from from what I've been seeing, the information that's been coming out that I've been seeing, you know, the, they said a couple of years ago, there was scientists saying within the next five years, we won't be able to go to the pole by foot. And that was probably two, three years ago, they started saying that. Um, the last full expedition to the North Pole was 2014, you know, and they said then they, they felt that they, they may be the last people to do that. There's a slight difference, though, in a full expedition a full kind of 60-day expedition that's that's doing the full distance to the north pole to the shorter expedition that i'm looking at which is the last degree so is is getting helicoptered out dropped off at 89 degrees and then having that final degree that 60 miles to go so those are those are still happening um, it's more the the longer the bigger expeditions that are becoming harder to get permission to go and do but even with the shorter expeditions, if Barneo, which is the, the jump off point that the, the Russians set it up every March, they go out, they build a sort of a temporary uh, logistical town, if you like, on the sea ice, which has the runway that, that brings, uh, brings people in. If they don't build that, then nothing happens. 
so it's there's a lot of things with the North Pole that have to come together for it <laughs> for it to happen it's probably the one that I'm I have my biggest concerns about there's so many things that can stop it that are completely out of your control well, like what you mentioned earlier sorry yeah like what you mentioned earlier with the opportunities that you have got so you've mentioned the positives you've mentioned the negatives but knowing you and and having our discussions in the past few weeks the only things you can control that's what you're focusing on right now so all these things with the north pole and the timings it's important that you're ready for when that happens but there's no guarantee that you can control any of those circumstances yeah whereas having this potentially worst case scenario of an extra year does enable you the extra training does enable you to you know have a larger time for financial planning and and fundraising so i know know we're going back about five ten minutes here but (laughs) i I like that you brought those points up because in a similar way paul and i well paul does a lot more running challenges than i do but this is impacting every single person in every single challenge that we're doing. Yeah. And all our all of our events have been cancelled this year. But again, for me, I'm even thinking that gives me an extra year to be stronger, more prepared for these events. Yeah. And your event is um, significantly tougher than anything that I, I'm planning to do. But it's the same thing. It's the same principles. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, it's it's all relative, isn't it, as well? It's like, yes, or, you know, you can have a, I think sometimes it's, it's that thing, the bigger event, the bigger the, the bigger the event, the more things there are that can go wrong. And with this particularly, because it's linking 10 different environments together, then there's a huge amount that, that can go wrong. Even, you know, you can get through, I could get to get through eight of them get to Everest and Everest says no you're not going to stand on my summit this this season or yeah I could get to with the North Pole actually you 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 can't you can't know until pretty much they can make a decision the day before you're due to fly out and I've I've known of expeditions over the last couple of years they've literally been sitting there with all their kit just waiting for the, the the scientists to say yes you can go no you can't so there's an but these are all things that are out of your control. And I think I said in a I don't know, Facebook post, I think it was when I came back from Kenya and I sort of had people saying, oh, you know, well, what about your expedition? And I said, you know, as far as I'm concerned at the moment, I'm still planning for it to start in December and I'm still training. The one, you know, if, if it has to change, then it will be because of things that are outside of my control, not because I've just gone oh, well, I don't know if it's going to happen, so I'm not going to do any training or whatever. I'm just going to sit back for the next six months and hope because otherwise, you know, you could go one way or the other. What I certainly am not going to allow to happen is that we get to October and everything kind of starts coming together and everything opens up and it's like, oh, wow, I can go in December. Oh, actually, I'm not fit enough. So yeah, so right now it's all damage limitations, isn't it, with your training and just keeping yeah, things ticking over to yeah. a certain degree. As, as hard as it is to really get into specifics with training, I certainly can't take my eye off the ball and my foot off the gas because yeah, there's, that's certainly there's the uncertainty goes either way. It, it will either all just have to get pushed back or it will suddenly be October. Hey, we've got we've green light, you know, we're on. And I certainly don't want to get to October and think, Oh great. Now I've got six weeks to try and get fit. So yeah, it's just, it's just kind of trying to get a bit of a balance, I suppose, between not having it become this sort of all-consuming thing, trying to kind of, you know, stay positive through all of this strangeness that's going on around us and just kind of trying to see the the opportunities and the things that, that can be done. You know, whereas in the past, I would have really been focused on all the things that are going wrong and all the stuff I can't do and and it would all get pretty gloomy and it's I'm not saying that there aren't days where that does happen because there are there's plenty of those days when that happens or at least you know time periods within a day when that happens Um, and it all gets a bit overwhelming and a bit kind of oh you know why is it all going wrong but that's I think that's natural I think you can be the most positive person in the world and you're still if you're not having those moments then you're probably 
kidding yourself slightly, you know, because you have to, you have to be realistic and, and acknowledge the things that aren't going the way you want them to, but not allow them to, to consume you and bring you down. Just going back to the poles and the last, that last degree, that last 60 miles, I have no idea how much ground or how quickly you can cover ground in those kind of environments. So how long would you, would you expect those 60 miles to take you in the, in the poles? The South Pole is, it's about seven days to, to travel that, that distance. So the South Pole is very different because it's not moving. It, it is a landmass, so it doesn't move. Whereas with the North Pole, it's shifting constantly and you get pressure ridges build up. So essentially it's where two sort of, I guess, blocks of, of the ice, you know, meet together and sort of form a little mountain range in, in a way that you then have to try and get over with your pulp. You can come across water leads that have opened up. You can actually, you can, you can pitch your tent for the night in one place. And when you get up in the morning, you've actually moved. You could move a mile, two mile, three miles in hopefully the right direction, <laughs> but not always. Um, I'm actually, I'm just, I'm currently reading the book. I don't know if you remember the Walking with the Wounded, which was the exhibition that Prince Harry got involved with. They took the yeah. wounded servicemen and they, and they went to the North Pole. And I'm, I've, I'd seen it on TV a few times, but I've got hold of the book and it's fascinating. And the stage they're at now is, you know, they're, they're on their, they've been on the, on the ice for a few days. And their first night, you know, they, they, when they woke up, they'd actually drifted, I think, a mile and a half backwards, which they hadn't expected. So where they, you know, suddenly they, they travelled five miles, but now they were a mile and a half back the way they'd already gone. So they kind of had to, but then after that it changed and they started, the, the, the drift of the ice actually starts helping them. Um, and taking them more in the right direction so you kind of have these things that go on so obviously you know if you're, you're pitching a tent in one place and then you wake up the next morning and you're a couple of miles back the way you've just come it's adding mileage onto the distance that you're actually covering yeah and a lot more depends on whether you have to go over things round things you know where the sea ice is taking you so there's a there's it, the north pole is slightly less easy to predict how long it or to say how long it is from a mileage point of view but even so I'd, you'd still kind of expect it to take around about the same sort of time somewhere seven to ten days to make that distance and the north pole is unique to a lot of the other environments in the sense of the wildlife as well um, mm -hmm. so you may have to contend with polar bears mm -hmm. um, so are you are you doing this solo or are you going with someone I mean, uh, no, I won't be solo. I will be okay. with. I uh, will be with um, teams somewhere so along the way. I don't know who they are, but yeah. <laughs> so you will have people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The camp at night. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. Right. I'm not brave That's enough cool. to do that solo. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night with a polar bear sniffing around the tent. That's going to be pretty terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, I'm, I, I leave that to the proper polar experts. They can do that bit. I'm, just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing it the easy way, as they would say. So you're skiing and you're towing all your kit. Will there be kind of dog teams and things there as well, or is it just people? Um, uh, it'll just it will just be people on skis. So it's not that easy. <sighs> Nothing worth doing is ever easy, is it? No, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it was like easy, everybody would be doing playing it. This down. <laughs> <laughs> she's definitely playing us down isn't she <laughs> oh no it's it's not really easy nothing is going to be easy i think i'll probably spend 90 percent of the time thinking what the heck am i doing why am i doing this and then you get to the top of a mountain and you go oh yeah this is why i'm doing this <laughs> well that's it. i mean something like everest so few people relative to the amount of people there are have ever done it or will ever do it you're going to be standing higher than 99% of people in human history, probably even more than that. I said to Luke before we came on today, I've got a friend who's a pilot and I'd always heard this thing about, oh, when you stand on Everest, you're standing at the cruising altitude of a jumbo jet. And I thought, well, how is that actually real? And I just sent him a quick message and said, you know, what altitude do you actually fly at when you're doing long haul? And he said, oh, well, it, it 
it depends on various things and long story short so it's between 34 and 38,000 feet cruising altitude but while Everest is, is 29,000 so you're pretty close if you, if you I'd imagine I'm, I'm thinking of the views from the tops of kind of mountains I've been in in the UK and you get pretty impressive views up there and the highest we've got is is Ben Nevis at what, three and a half thousand feet ish so you're going to get a pretty impressive view up there I imagine in that moment when you're standing there that's gonna be oh, you know what this was worth it I'm focusing a lot on Everest because it's it's the one I've actually done some reading on in the past of the the mountains and the, the locations you're going to obviously Everest it's still I think it's one in 19 one in 20 people who attempt to summit still die there's got to be a huge health risk to this challenge so how do you, do you is that something you just don't I mean I imagine you can't not think about it because then you won't prepare properly for it so how mm. do you how do you face something like that those kinds of I think it's the same with a lot of things is that you face it one step at a time one day at a time one move at a time and when you look at the the big picture and you take into all those things and you and obviously you must not blinker yourself to the the possibilities because if you do you get blase and you just think oh it won't happen to me and then you go and you know fall into a crevasse or something because you weren't looking where you were going but so you have to be a very aware of the things that can happen because that keeps you safe. So you can't knock that fear on the head completely. And I think in, in there are certainly scenarios like that where fear is a good thing. You know, fear can keep you alive and, uh, and keep you alert. And especially when you're in that kind of environment where, you know, you're going up beyond 8,000 meters where your body is literally dying it cannot regenerate itself because there is you're not getting the enough oxygen for that to happen and strange things start happening in in your brain and you know so suddenly rationale can just go out the window you know and that's happened a lot and that is that is where a lot of deaths have happened is because you know people have started to get sick they have started to get altitude sickness they've and, and their brain just is not functioning in the normal way so they're not processing the dangers in the normal way we know that there's people you know have been with the hypothermic and that sort of thing the body starts overheating they start taking their kit off and obviously then you know they freeze to death but their brain is telling them that they're hot and it's not appreciating the surroundings that they're in and that's you know there's no it's the, the you're not thinking rationally and you, you, you know, so trying to kind of prevent that, but, you know, so, you know, trying to keep the brain thinking and, and, and analyzing and keeping it real is, is a challenge up there. And the longer you're above 8,000 meters, the harder that gets, you know, even doing a sim simple maths becomes a problem. And I had a, a I have had not similar experiences, but sort of interesting times where we've done them I mean, particularly obviously you know in the army a lot of stuff where you go out and exercise it is all about sleep deprivation and you know putting you into stressful situations when you haven't slept for three days and then you haven't really eaten properly and all that sort of thing so I'm not unused to that sort of thing but I, we did go on one um, training last year down actually in Dartmoor and we did a little training exercise it wasn't military it was actually it was was to do with polar training we went out and um we were in, on dartmoor for what 24 hours with no food i think we had whatever water that we happened to bring with us so we probably had a couple of liters of water but we had no food and no sleep and the difference even in the simple thing of map reading the next day you know the sort of the longer we got into this the it was noticeable how much more concentration you needed just to do the simple thing of working out the bearing that you were on and, you know, keeping track of where you were on the map. So it was quite, it was a really interesting little exercise to sort of see how your cognitive functions start to be affected by sleep deprivation and food deprivation 
and water deprivation you know, within the realms of safety, obviously. <laughs> um, but these are all things that, you, these are the, the realities of being at altitude. This, this can happen. So it's good to have these little experiences so that you can kind of be a bit prepared beforehand. I guess that's also where the, um, the Sherpas and the guides, wherever you are, become invaluable. Yeah. Um, obviously, they're not immune to the effects of altitude or, or extreme temperatures, anything like that. But they're experienced with it. They've probably seen it all and they will know how to, to deal with certain situations. Mm. Yeah, and that is the, the rule out there now, as with a lot of countries, is that you, know, you cannot climb Everest without a Sherpa guide. There is now a one-to-one -one ratio. So every client that's going up there has to have a per, like a, a personal Sherpa guide. Um, so, you know, but there's lots of, there's lots of debates and arguments around Everest and <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the rights and wrongs of, of who goes up there and who doesn't, but <laughs> that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was something I've kind of wanted to touch on. I think it was last year, there was a big thing in the news about the queues yeah. for the summit and Ant Middleton did a programme for when he summited Everest and how the weather changed when he was coming down and stuck in a queue trying to get yeah. down. And a lot of these queues and things seem to be caused by inexperienced climbers who probably shouldn't be there in the first place, but have big enough pockets, deep enough pockets to, to get on these kinds of expeditions. So where do you stand on that, that kind of thing? Should there be tighter regulations on who can and can't climb? It is a really difficult one because Everest, obviously, for Nepal, is a huge part of their economy, particularly the Sherpa um, region and the Sherpa people. So it, it kind of does it does put them in a, a, a difficult situation. And and there was a few years actually where I said actually no, I'm not. I, I don't want to go to Everest because there's too many people there, and I, I kind of have a thing where I don't really want to do something that everybody else is doing. I like doing things that people aren't doing. So I actually kind of turned off the idea of going to Everest. But then I do still want to stand up there. So, <laughs> so uh, I mean, I don't, I don't go with the, the theory that if you pay enough money, you can be dragged up the mountain. You can't be. If you make it to the summit, you make it to the summit. You, you can't be carried up there. However... I do agree that there are people up there who shouldn't be there. There, there are people who, you know, this is their, their first experience at altitude and it's Everest. And that then becomes a, well, you know, what happened to the whole, you know, building yourself up, going to 5,000 metres, 6,000 metres, 7,000 metres. You can't really, uh, Everest is very unique in the type of, of things that you will come across and um, the whole crevasse crossings and that sort of thing, the Kumbu Icefall. Although I'm actually planning, on, I'll go from the north side, so I won't go through the Kumbu Icefall. But, um, you know, there's a lot of things that actually are quite hard to train for on other mountains because you don't experience them. But I don't think that, that people should be making Everest their first attempt at altitude. Or, you know, the first time they put a set of crampons on and it's when they get to the icefall at the bottom of Everest. That, that to me, is just asking for trouble. You know, you've got to have the basic skills. That said, you know, you can, you know, you can have gone to 5,000, 6,000 metres. Um, you could have gone to 8,000 metres and still find that suddenly the altitude gets you. You can't really, you can't necessarily prepare and train for every eventuality because it's only actually by going and doing these things that you then gain the experience of, of it. But yeah, I think maybe there will be changes. I know last this year, or last year, sorry, was fairly tricky because the weather just didn't happen. And there was just this two-day window. And so everybody that was there went. However, you know, there are arguments to say, well, if the people that were there had more experience and they probably could have gone or some of them could have gone in the not quite so nice weather bit. So maybe that wouldn't have created quite the queue that there was. But I don't know. I wasn't there. And, I'm, you know, it's it's easy to kind of sit back and, and look at things when you weren't actually there and, in, and experiencing it. 
you know based on on one photograph but it i think there will be things that will change and i think they, they potentially will bring in not strict regulations but i know that there's talk of things like possibly that before you can go to everest you have to show evidence that you've been on an eight thousand meter peak before there's been talk of perhaps everybody will have to provide their full medical records there's sort of i think there's various things that are being bandied around as to how they might do it but ultimately they're not going to want to lose that trade do you fear that with everything that's happened this year or happening this year and with the whole everest season being cancelled that it may go the other way next year and potentially it'll be a bit of a free-for-all because nepal will just need to to boost their economy yeah you say it's such a huge part of of where they make yeah them. and actually that is it's a question that i kind of asked myself when i was thinking about the the things that potentially might be reasons to postpone my expedition and that actually was one of them because i sort of thought well okay so what might happen is that all the expeditions that were meant to go this year are now postponed until next year plus then you do have that possibility that you're going to get all the people that were scheduled to go next year are going to be there as well so it, it is something that that has crossed my mind as to you know is actually this gonna you know is it another reason why perhaps it might be better to postpone it for a year let things settle back to normal again but you know you don't know might be that by by next year they've actually brought in tighter regulations <laughs> who knows i don't know it's just it's so up in the air at the moment there's so many things that may change may not change it's a really hard it's really hard to call but yeah that is something that i have that has popped into my head as well is next year going to be you know completely overwhelmed i don't know till they open it up again we, we're not going to find out i don't think I think it'd actually be quite good to get you back on when things do settle down to actually revisit this conversation as well, just to see how things have changed when there's actually guidance as to what can and what can't be done. Mm. I think it'd be really interesting to revisit this mm. and hopefully we'll be in a, in a lot more certain state. Some pretty good news. Yeah. I'd certainly like to think hopefully by, you know, sort of September, October time that we have, we're getting an idea of what is happening around the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think final question to wrap things up of the the expedition, which part are you most looking forward to and which part are you most apprehensive about? Oh, the one I'm most apprehensive about is certainly the North Pole. Yeah, uh, there's so many elements to that that, that could that could go wrong. And is is definitely I think the most will always have the most uncertainty I think as to whether you get to go or not and what I'm most looking forward to hmm, I don't know I'm kind of looking forward to them all in 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 different ways I'm looking forward to the South Pole I think that's going to be quite I think that'll be quite epic but also you know pretty good but I think mountain wise Everest is a little bit too kind of obvious, I think. I think of the mountains. I think Denali I'm quite looking forward to. It's actually, I think, you know, technically it's, or certainly from a cold point of view, it's it's going to be, it can be tougher than Everest. It's the coldest mountain of them all. And it's also, it's it's the, it's of all the mountains in the world, it has the greatest base to, to summit elevation gain because the base is only, I think, something like 184 metres above sea level. So you've, you've got 6,000 metres of, of elevation gain. So it's, it's, it's quite an epic to get into. It is a difficult one. But yeah, I think I'm kind of looking forward to, to Denali quite a lot. And that will be the last one, most likely. I kind of had an, an idea that I wanted Everest to be the last one, but actually the weather windows for Denali and Everest, they, they don't match. So it's, it is really, Denali has to be the last one. So that could be the, the one that finishes them all off. So I think that's, it's probably going to have more significance because if I've got there, then that means I've done the rest of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you very, very much for coming. Thank on. you for having um, me. It's been really, really interesting talking to you. Um, as Luke said, it'd be great to get you on again once we've got a better idea of what's happening. And, and certainly once you've completed the challenge, kind of get a bit of a review. Yeah, I'd love to. Where can people go to find out more about you your challenge 
sponsorship opportunities anything like that? um so website wise it's uh, it's all fairly simple i'm it's uh, www.suzanneturneradventure.com instagram is the same at suzanne turner adventure and on facebook the tag is the same but the page is called suzanne's challenge page um, and that actually goes back i've had that a few years it's got all sorts of crazy stuff on it uh, so yeah cool. um so yeah those are my my three main ones i am not on twitter i was for a little bit and i just didn't get it so i, to... <laughs> <laughs> so I gave up on that one <laughs> and i try and keep the social media relatively simple so yeah instagram and facebook are the two and the website uh... cool brilliant and luke same question. Yeah, so Facebook is Zen Anatomy Sports Therapy. Instagram is Zen underscore Anatomy. And I'm putting, I'm using Instagram a lot more now, so there's a few more challenges and stuff on there if you want to find out more about that. And the website is zenanatomy.co.uk. I am at Paul Rose PT on Facebook and Instagram or paulrosept.com. And as you've made it this far as well, please hit subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Um, thank you very much for joining us today and we will see you next time goodbye